0: Our foundation is built on solid rock. Yes, you The
1: rock of our salvation on Solace Radio. Been some real tragedy this uh, past week, actually past several weeks. Some true bits of terrorism. So we live in difficult days, actually. Sometimes we don't mind, even though it disturbs us, we don't mind hearing about terrorism overseas. Paris. Israel, places that are not so close to us and don't necessarily affect us personally, although they do, more than we probably want to, want to realize. But when it starts to come home, as it is, we start to consider things a little more deeply. 9-11 in 2001, the nation woke up because of the Twin Towers coming down by terrorism. And then, I don't know, maybe a year later, the nation was asleep already again. This time, friends, I think we're not only receiving a wake-up call, but we're being called to stay awake, to stay awake, be alert. The enemy is drawing near, but the Lord is drawing near. Be alert, Yeshua said. You don't know the day or the hour when the Lord shall come. But I read an interesting article this week. I'll share with you. I hope it's encouraging to you. It may not be. The nearness of the Lord coming. He prophesied and we ought to. We've heard it. We've heard it many, many times, but maybe we haven't paid attention. But I'm going to keep talking about it because we need to pay attention. He said, you're going to hear about wars and rumors of wars. There are going to be famines and there are going to be all kinds of natural disasters in the earth, but there are going to be wars and rumors of wars, and the love of many will grow cold. Is it getting cold? Getting colder, anybody? Talking about global warming? I'm talking about soul, the souls of people growing cold. We need a little spiritual warming. Heat. This comes from Rabbi Moshe Sternbuck. Sternbuch. Sternbuch. Who is not a believing Jew, but he's, he's, he's a major rabbi, the head of a major yeshiva in Israel. He's vice president of the rabbinical court. He's chief judge of the Eda, Haredis, or Haredis, the Haredi sector of ultra-Orthodox Judaism, Hasidic, in Jerusalem. He's dean of the Ramot Yeshiva. Anyway, during a recent weekly lesson, he addressed the conflict between Russia and Turkey. Isn't that interesting for a spiritual man? To address the conflict between Russia and Turkey. And said that it means we should expect the Moshiach. Quote, We have a documented tradition this rabbi is saying. We have a documented tradition going back to Rabbi Eliyahu ben Shlomo Zalman, known as the Vilna Goan. Ga'on. Ga'on means a sage. Uh, Someone who is highly, highly respected in Judaism. Someone who sets a postmark for Jewish thought, life, and law. So he's descended from... The Vilna Gaon, which, who lived in 1720 to 1797. Now you understand this. Many people herald, heralded the Gaon, the Vilna Gaon, Rabbi Eliyahu ben Shlomel Zalman as the most intelligent, intellectually, uh, enlightened rabbi of modern times. He was so studied, he knew huge portions of Scripture by heart and could tell them to you easily, and he was highly respected. We have a documented tradition going back to the, to the Vilna Gaon, he says, that if the Russians will come and occupy Istanbul, the capital of Turkey, we'll have to rush and wear our Shabbat clothes And expect the Messiah, said Rabbi Sternbuch. He continued, Behold, the Russians and the Turks have begun to quarrel with each other. We can hear the sounds of war. Wars and rumors of wars. We can hear the sound of war. So really, all the nations are wondering what happened. How did Turkey start up with Russia? What happened? But we see in this the fulfillment of the teaching of our sages, that when Moshiach should come, God pits kingdoms against one another, and they start war against their own will, continued Rabbi Sternbuch, which is why we, in the year past the Shemitah, the year past the Shemitah year, see this as a great encouragement, and we should arise. Listen, friends, this guy is not a believer in Yeshua, but he is a believer in the coming of the Messiah. And I believe that he's seeking the Lord, and I believe that the Lord will reveal Yeshua to him. He's extremely influential. And he says, be encouraged. Don't be fearful. That's what Yeshua says. Don't be fearful. When you see these things happening, then Yeshua is coming soon. Rabbi Sternbuch also noted that it is written that near the time of the coming of the Moshiach, the people of Israel will have troubles from the children of Ishmael. And they will succeed in provoking the children of Israel. We are at a crossroads, and we pray to the Holy One, blessed is He, to redeem us. We must wake up and do teshuvah return repent because if god forbid because if god forbid we don't the children of ishmael would prevail now is an opportune time to be strengthened and to pray moshiach stands behind our walls waiting to arrive rabbi sternbuch added after all It's hard to understand how a country like Turkey begins a war and even refuse to say they're sorry. Er is a mashigana. That means Erdogan is crazy. God confuses them, the nations, the leaders of nations, which is why we should be strengthened in teshuva, in repentance, and then we will merit to be truly redeemed speedily. Interesting, isn't it? This is coming. This has, be, this has be, this already started to come out of Israel, voices like this. But here is another loud voice saying, The Messiah is at our doorstep. And here's the sign. Now, he picks a sign, interestingly enough, of a nation, Turkey, that happens to be mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 37 and 38. But he's saying, Why would someone like Turkey? Okay, there's some arrogance there. You know, they are stronger than some of the smaller nations. But why would they pick on Russia? Russia is, compared to Turkey, is a Goliath. And he's saying because the leadership of the nations now, they're being confused. And they're going to do things that are against their own will and and right judgment. To provoke what I would say is the fulfillment of Yeshua prophesied. Wars and rumors of wars, that is, nations going against nations because the Mashiach is soon coming. Interesting enough, isn't it? Actually, kind of fits with the theme of Hanukkah. Hanukkah is is another holiday where we could easily say, they tried to kill us. God defeated them. Let's eat. (laughs) <laughs> well, that's, that's the truth. That, that, every victory, every victory that we celebrate in the scriptures, they tried to kill us. God defeated them. Let's celebrate. Let's eat. I think the assurance that God remembers his covenant people is a great assurance for us. And today in this parashah, the parasha Tashavuah, we begin the story of Joseph. You know, Joseph was going to take, he'll take up the next three parashot till the end of the book of Genesis. And why does he take up so much room in the book of, of the Torah? Because he is very important. He's a very important figure. Not only because he was the firstborn of Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel. And Jacob loved him, not only because of that, and not only because Jacob had already decided he was going to make Joseph the preeminent one among the tribes and have Joseph carry on the leadership of the tribes. You see that later in the last parasha when he says, Reuven, you are my firstborn, you are my strength, but you sinned against me, so you forfeited your, your position as firstborn. And it rolls over to Joseph, who's the firstborn of Rachel. Jacob loved him. Not only because of those reasons, but because Joseph foreshadows the Messiah. His life, his entire life foreshadows the Messiah. So many incidences... I've done this in the past, I'm not doing it today, but I've, I've created lists and other people have created lists that parallel the things that happened to Joseph and the things that happened to Yeshua, and there's a remarkable parallel, markable, remarkable resemblance of both. Probably the greatest is that to Joseph's family, let's call them the Jewish people, shall we? To Joseph's brothers and his father and his family, he was dead. His brothers declared him dead. His father believed it. He was dead. But years later, during the famine, during a great time of need, when the Jewish people sought a stranger, the leader of Egypt under the pharaoh, to keep them alive. Yes, for, with food, but let's keep in mind, let's do it spiritually. To keep them alive, they needed help from a stranger. And they sought the stranger. And the stranger turned out to be their brother, Joseph. Friends, this is exactly what's going to happen in the Jewish community. It's already happening. To remain alive, we are going to seek a stranger, a stranger to us. You know what Jew believes in Jesus Christ? Give me a break. We had a wonderful older woman who used to come here to Brook Hashem from the old country. She's passed away now she's with the Lord. She came here for six months, every Shabbat, and this wonderful Christian couple that brought her every Shabbat, wanted her desperately wanted her to know Yeshua her Messiah. Finally, after six months, they came to me just in despair, and they said, we've been bringing her for six months. We've been bringing her every every time, every Shabbat here. We've been talking to her about how she needs Jesus Christ as her Savior. And she refuses. She keeps saying something like, well, I was born a Jew and I'll die a Jew. Jews don't believe in Jesus Christ. So I said, let me pay a visit to her. So I went to her home, and I began to speak in Yiddish with her. And I asked her about this couple and about Jesus Christ, and she said the same thing to me. Well, I was born a Jew and I'll die a Jew. And I, and I said, Sarah, I said, who is Yeshua? She says, well, Yeshua, he's the Mashiach. <laughs> She's been coming for six months. She heard the good news about Yeshua. It's been it was bad news about Jesus Christ, the one who was always represented when Christians were persecuting us. She couldn't believe in him. And I said in Yiddish I said, "Don't you know that Yeshua and Jesus are the same man?" It was like the light bulb came on. And she became a strong believer. So we believe in a stranger. His name isn't Joseph. His name really isn't even Jesus. Stepping on anyone's toes. His name is Yeshua. When the when the angel <laughs> when the angel Gabriel came and told Miriam, Yeshua's mother, told Miriam, "You're going to be you're going to be pregnant with a son." And you're going to name him. He didn't say, what would you like to name him? You're going to name him Yeshua. Because he will save his people from their sin. Yeshua means salvation. Why wouldn't he be named Yeshua? So the story of Joseph that I'm about to share with you is the beginning of the story. The end of the story is... He ended up saving Israel and bringing life to his own Jewish people. So many Gentiles already believed in him in Egypt. He saved so, the lives of so many Gentiles in so many nations. They already believed in him. It was coming for his brothers, and it did come. That's the end of the story. Okay, you don't have to read the rest of Genesis anymore. Well, let's take a look at this because I want to continue our series called Building Character. This is the sixth message on this theme. I don't want to focus in today on homegrown conspiracy. Anybody like conspiracy theories? Oh, yeah. The thing that the trouble I have about conspiracy theories is they're cover ups for the truth. No, you didn't get that joke. That was a conspiracy theory. <laughs> Thank you. You're slow today. <laughs> Homegrown conspiracy. Based on Joseph and his relationship with his brothers. From of course our, our portion via Genesis 37 through 40. Here we go. Just because I'm paranoid doesn't mean someone's not trying to kill me. <laughs> Anybody need to go to the Paranoia Clinic? There's a conspiracy theory discussion group that meets at 2 p.m. right after service. Let's talk about Joseph and his brothers. I don't want to make this too lengthy, but I do want to share it with you. Now Israel loved Joseph, loved Joseph the most of all his children, and he made him a special coat. David Stern translated as a long sleeved coat. Others translated as a multicolored coat, a many colored coat. Let's just call it a special coat. Probably a coat of some measure of recognition of taking over the line of the tribes of Jacob, the line of Israel. Probably a designation that this young boy at 17 years old was recognized by his father, by Jacob, by Israel, as the, as the one who would take over the leadership of the tribes. And his brothers were unhappy. Now Jacob lived, by Eshev in the land where his father had sojourned, in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jace, Jacob, Joseph. These are the records. Why didn't he just say the record? This is the history of the line of Jacob, Joseph. Joseph, when he was 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. He's a snitch. I don't know, would you call him a brown noser with his father? Brought back a bad report. His brothers didn't like it. His father loved it. What do we do? What do we say when we know someone's doing wrong and we report it? That person who did wrong hates us for it. The person who needed to hear the report loves us for it. I needed to know that. Most of us are faced with that sort of dilemma at times. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a very colored tunic or a long-sleeved coat. And his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. I know that each of us has experienced this. You sense a change in someone's attitude even when they speak to us or speak to you or speak to me. Something's, something's off. Something's not right anymore. Well, most people who expound on these passages start to focus in on, well, this is what happens when a father shows deference to one child over the other. This is what happens when you love one kid more than you love the others. The others feel rejected and displaced. And so the focus becomes a little bit psychological. Well, I'm sure that's part of what happened here. And his brothers hated him for it. Then Joseph had a dream. Ah, the dreamer. Was Joseph a dreamer who inflamed hatred and jealousy among his brothers? All right, look. The scripture already tells us his brothers hated him because his father loved him more. It doesn't say anything about what he had done so far to offend his brothers, other than bring a bad report, which is bad enough. And his father loved him for it and loved him more than his brothers, and they hated Joseph. But now Joseph has a couple of dreams. What are the dreams? Well, all of his family is going to bow down to him. Basically, in a nutshell... You know, here's this youngest kid, the 17-year-old, all the brothers older than him, they're all going to bow down. Even his father and mother are going to bow down to him in his dreams. And these brothers are simply outraged. In fact, the scripture here in this portion says they hated him even more. Okay, what could he have done? Look, maybe he could have kept the dreams to himself and prayed. He had just had to tell his brother his dreams, brothers. You know, hey, all you guys, you're going to bow down to me. Joseph was a good boy. I'm not saying anything negative about Joseph other than did he provoke his brothers to hate him even more? Sounds like it. Not every prophecy is supposed to be spoken. Not every dream is supposed to be revealed. Sometimes we know something about someone because God has shared it with us. And we, instead of beginning to pray, we immediately go and talk. We had that happen at Baruch Hashem years ago. A dear friend of mine and a brother who I had invited to speak gave a wonderful message. But afterwards, we had a little lunch where he began to prophesy. And he prophesied over this one couple. He didn't know the couple. I did. I felt his prophecy was, at the very least, off. But at the very minimum, I thought he should have kept it to himself and maybe just told me to pray or something. But he told it to this couple. And you know, some people, when they get prophetic words, they take it as gospel and they just act on it immediately. Some prophetic words, you have to wait and see what happens in the next step before you act upon them. Some prophetic words aren't even true. Anyway, he, he, he gave this couple this prophetic word, how God would prosper them, raise them up into ministry, etc., etc. And they would be greatly used of the Lord. Well, they acted on it right away. Do you know that today this couple's divorced? Well, it didn't take that long. A year later after this prophetic word was given, the couple divorced and they both wandered away from the Lord. Does that mean the prophetic word was wrong? Not necessarily. Maybe it shouldn't have been spoken. Joseph the dreamer just voiced his dreams out loud. And look, 17-year-old kid telling everybody else, his older brothers in particular who already hated him and were jealous. Look, all you guys are going to bow down to me. Even mom and dad are going to bow down to me. And they hated him even more. It all began with the hatred that was born out of Jacob's extra love. When you know somebody hates you because of an external reason, should we exacerbate that hatred by inflaming, throwing something into the fire? I'll leave it up to you to answer that question, but I don't think so. But I have to say, this is where Romans 8.28 applied. Even though the book of Romans hadn't, no one's, even, no one's the, the Torah hadn't been written yet on skin. All things work together for the good, for those who are called. For the good, for those who are called, who love God and are called according to his purpose. So this was going to happen to Joseph. Here's the conspiracy. This is not a theory, by the way. That's why I didn't put conspiracy theory. This is conspiracy fact. Just because I'm paranoid doesn't mean someone's not trying to kill me. In Genesis 37, beginning in verse 18... When they saw him, you know, he was sent by his father to find out how the boys, the older brothers were doing with the sheep. And when they, when he, when he was nearly at the point of arrival, when they saw him from a distance and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. Some of your versions say they conspired against him, the conspiracy conspiracy. The brothers conspired against Joseph to kill him, and then they compounded that conspiracy with how they were going to cover it up. When they saw him from a distance, they plotted against him to put him to death, and they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Oh, I wonder what they would have called him if he hadn't shared their dreams. Here comes the dreamer. Now then. Now here's the conspiracy. Now they're talking amongst themselves. Here's the conspiracy. Wouldn't you like to be a fly on the wall in some of these elitist groups that are conspiring? Gosh, I don't know if that would be good or just horror. Now then, come and let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits and we will say a wild beast devoured him. Then, let us see what will become of his dreams. The conspiracy. Here's what a conspiracy is. A secret plan by a group. In some places in Scripture, this is a little scary, because we use the Hebrew word kesher all the time to make connections. In fact, we're, we're, we've been planning now for a while to begin uh, small groups in the homes, and we're calling them kesher groups. So I'm giving you something that sounds a little scary, but most Hebrew, many Hebrew words can be used in two different ways. This is a bad way. There are groups who gather together, in some places in Hebrew called kesher, who plot evil. Something harmful, something unlawful. Plotting evil. So a conspiracy is a secret plan by a group to do something unlawful or harmful. Here's one. Here are a couple of them, actually. In 2 Samuel 15, 12, you have Absalom or Avshalom gathering with other elitist part of his group, saying, how are we going to overthrow my father David, King David? They were conspiring against King David, and actually their conspiracy ended up working to a point. In the end, Absalom was killed. King David regained his throne. In Matthew twenty-six fourteen through 16, we find Yehuda or Judas Iscariot, if you will. Judah from the cryote, conspiring with some of the priests and some of the leaders in the temple, saying, I know you, want, you know you want to kill Yeshua. Well, I'll tell you what, for a price, I'll turn him over to you. This was the conspiracy. Not theory, fact. Homegrown conspiracy. Was the San Bernardino massacre conspiracy? Some people certainly think so. They found all kinds of homemade bombs and stuff in the the house of this couple. It wasn't just a spontaneous, I'm mad at you, I'm going to come in with a gun. They had automatic weapons, they had pipe bombs, they had all kinds of stuff. Brought other people with them. Some conspiracies are real. And this was a homegrown conspiracy against Joseph. What about the scheme, the scheme of the conspiracy? The words that we, were, that we heard, we are fly on the wall when we read the family diary, the Jewish family diary, the word of God. A fly on the wall, let's kill him. And then we'll say some wild animal got him. What's the scheme in the conspiracy? Well, let me just say, without focusing on any particular conspiracy theories, beware, friends, beware, be on the alert. The scheming or plotting that is birthed out of darkness. Look, sometimes we use scheming in a positive way. You know, we scheme to give somebody a surprise birthday party and don't tell them and we invite 20 people and we we'll say make sure you don't tell that person we want it to be a surprise so it's for good it's for fun it's but beware of the scheming and the plotting that's birthed out of darkness in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 10 through 11 Rav Shaul says forgive forgiveness is the thing to walk in forgive If you don't forgive, you give the enemy, the devil, a foothold in your heart so that he can kind of plant the seeds of his schemes. Forgive so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his schemes, of his methods, of his plans, of his plotting. Certainly, part of his method is to come in where there's unforgiveness, where there's anger, where there's resentment residing in our hearts because we want revenge. And he'll come in and he'll provide it for us. He's happy to do that. It's just that we don't understand that for us it means death. Forgiveness is a huge antidote. Or antidote, excuse me, antidote against the plots or the schemes of Satan. In Ephesians chapter 6, use all the armor and weaponry that God provides so that you will be able to stand against the deceptive tactics, the schemes, the conspiracy, the schemes of the adversary. This is important stuff. Not just to listen to and say, wow, what a cool message. This is the stuff to employ in our lives. God gave it to us to do that very thing. In Proverbs chapter 12, verse 5, the plans of the righteous are just or right, but the schemes of the wicked are deceitful or wicked. I just mentioned Psalm 2. Why do the nations roar? God sits in the heavens and laughs. Do you think any of these conspiracies, any of these schemes born in darkness, it catches God unawares? God sits in the heavens and he's, he's listening to this group. Yeah, did they just say that? <laughs> they think they can do more than me. They think they can outwit me. Psalm 2 says, may all the nations give God praise. There's no scheming in darkness with the Lord. Sometimes we're prone to this. Let's just go along to get along. So here are Joseph's brothers, scheming, conspiring against Joseph to kill him. And Reuben stands up. He disagrees and he says, don't kill. Joseph, he's our brother. Don't kill him. Don't spill a brother's blood. That's still pretty much a principle within Judaism. That's why not only Israel, but many but all Jews around the world were shocked when Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated by a Jewish, a Jewish zealot. Jews... Don't spill the blood of other Jews, at least that's the principle. So he stood alone. There are times, friend, there are times, friends, when we're actually called to stand alone. What about our kids who are in public school or our kids who are in any school? And the, and the other kids all want to do something and don't tell your parents that we're doing this, and, and the kid just wants to get along. So he goes along. May the Lord give our children strength. May he give us strength to stand up and stand in the strength of our Messiah, Yeshua. To do what is right. To do righteousness. Yehuda also kept the brothers from murdering Joseph. But he did it by suggesting a greedy solution. Hey, here come some Ishmaelites. They'll pay for him. We won't kill him. We won't have blood on our hands. We'll sell them into slavery. Well, you know, slavery in Egypt meant sure death. So here you see the character of Yehuda, who is the beginning of the royal line of Israel. Wow. I thought it would be a little more noble than, you know, than that. All the kings of Israel came from his loins. He changes, by the way. And you're going to see that later on in the coming Parashot. There's a dramatic change in Judah, as in the other brothers. So here's the dreamer's nightmare. He gets sold into slavery, and he's in a dark place. He's probably depressed and despairing for life. And this is when he begins to really learn how to trust in the Lord and the Lord's faithfulness. And he learns how to be faithful to God. Not to boast in who he is and what he has, but to be faithful and humble before the Lord and trust in everything God is doing and be faithful to him. The beginning of a new life. So Joseph's character, Joseph's character was built in the context, friends, here it comes, I know you hate it. I do too. Of suffering. Character being built in the context of of suffering. At the moment he was feeling that he was unjustly accused, sentenced to slavery, and he's feeling complete rejection from his brothers. He's alone. He's alone. Remember I shared with you the last message message that oftentimes that's where God wants us to be alone with him. Can't rely on this, you can't rely on that. Alone with him, and we begin to hear his voice with a humble heart. In the book of Hebrews, Messianic Jews, chapter 5, verse 8, we read, Even though he was the Son, Yeshua learned obedience through his sufferings. If you say, maybe I can dodge the bullet of sufferings, Yeshua couldn't. I doubt that we can, but it will prove to be helpful in our lives. Nobody wants it, but it proves our faith. Yeshua's suffering is efficacious. That means it produces something. In Isaiah 53, we learn this. By his sufferings, we are healed. We are redeemed. We are atoned for. We are forgiven. We're filled with shalom. We're transformed into new human beings, and we're heaven-bound. All from one chapter in the Old Testament? <laughs> Isaiah 53, written 700 years before Yeshua's birth. In Acts chapter 17, verse 3, in the synagogue, Shaul was explaining that the Messiah had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and that this Yeshua is the Messiah. That's all we need to do when we're confronted. We just explain. The Messiah had to suffer like Joseph. God raised him from the dead. And he's the Mashiach and gives us life. He saves us. Atones for us, redeems us, gives us healing, peace in our hearts, and a great expectation for the future. So that means, friends, we are called to suffer with the Messiah. Listen to this, 1 Peter. Chapter one, verse three through nine. Listen to it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to stop to give explanations, but I just want you to listen to Kepha's words. Praised be God, Father of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah, who in keeping with the great mercy has caused us through the resurrection of Yeshua the Messiah from the dead to be born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that cannot decay spoil, or fade, kept safe for you in heaven. Meanwhile, through trusting, through faith, you are being protected by God's power for a deliverance ready to be revealed at the last time. Rejoice in this. Even though for a little while you may have to experience grief in various trials or various sufferings. Even gold is tested for genuineness by fire. The purpose of these trials is so that your trust genuineness which is far more valuable than perishable gold, will be judged worthy of praise, glory, and honor at the revealing of Yeshua the Messiah. Without having seen Him, you love Him. Without seeing Him now, but trusting in Him, you continue to be full of joy that is glorious beyond words. And you are receiving what your trust is aiming at, namely your deliverance, your salvation. That's not my word, that's the word of God. But he continues and he says, just be careful that you don't suffer because of your own evil deeds. Don't suffer as murderers or robbers and then say, I'm suffering for the Messiah, no? Suffer for righteousness for Yeshua's sake. Well, building character, that's what this series is about, but that's what God is interested in in us, in our hearts. Building character, a firm foundation in him in during times of trials. Joseph was providentially humbled by the Lord to bring a great salvation to his people and the rest of the world. Why do I say providentially humbled? Because his brothers conspired against him. His brothers hated him. He suffered rejection, injustice. And if he didn't catch the spiritual perspective of that, he would have died in Egypt. God providentially humbled him in those terrible circumstances and he began to hear God's voice, listen to him, and he was transformed. Friends, that's the attitude we need to have. When we go through suffering, Yeshua humbled himself even to the point of death so that he could provide redemption, Philippians chapter 2. So my dear brothers and sisters, will you please allow the character of God to be formed in you for his great purpose in your life. He has a great purpose for you. You know the old little... Booklet that says, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, I don't know about that, but yes, I do. He has a wonderful plan for you. He has a purpose for you, each one of you. Even if you say, I'm not worthy, Yeshua is worthy. Invite Him into your heart. It makes you worthy. God is not interested in using us in our flesh, He's interested in using us in Yeshua. He knows that His purpose will be accomplished. Adonai, we bless you and we thank you for your grace and mercy in our Messiah, Yeshua. Thank you, Lord, for desiring to build character, the character of God, your character in us, making us more and more like Yeshua. Thank you, Lord. We bless you. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Adonai, bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine on you. And be gracious to you. Adonai lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Yivarech Adonai ve yishma er Adonai ponavalecha vihunekah. Yisadu nai panavalecha veasem lecha shalom. B'shem Yeshua me'Shachenu. In the name of our Messiah Yeshua, Amen. Shabbat shalom. Go in the peace of our Messiah. God bless you. You're listening to Solace Radio on
0: the Meander Radio Network. Okay, are you ready for Jeremiah? Woo Now, one of the other things that I want to mention: some people have asked me on the internet as well as here, "Why is Jeremiah so jumbled?" Didn't you ever wonder why? And uh, God did not make a mistake. First off. Okay, some people think that, oh my goodness, the scripture isn't true. Well, the problem is our Western mindset. Who said it had to be chronological? Uh, number one. I think that the uh, all the different chapters mixed up kind of shows the turmoil that that, of that generation. I think in one sense it just really shows uh, it was crazy. But we're going to get to this one verse. If you remember, uh, what was Jeremiah's scribe's name? Baruch, and you remember what happened here, he writes the words of Jeremiah, and he takes it to the king, and what does the king do? Tears it all up, and throws it in the, <laughs> in the fire, and so it says Baruch went and wrote those same words, plus many more, you know, and so it's, it's just a chaotic time that was going on, but uh, I totally believe in the inspiration of scriptures, and God wanted it that way, and that's why it's that way. Okay, now, uh, let's look at this next PowerPoint. Let's go here just for a second. Uh, I want you to notice this is on your sheet. You can look at it if you kept your PowerPoints. This is toward the very, very end. And you'll notice um, this is when we were talking about Esther and Mordecai and how he was like 124 years old. Well, uh, I want to read to you a verse that is not in your notes. This is going to be the very first verse, but I want to bring this out to you. If you remember, and if you look at the the sheet there, in like 536 B.C., Cyrus uh, decrees it's okay to rebuild the temple, right? Well, listen, or write down this verse to Ezra, chapter 1, and listen to what it says. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. First year. Now listen to this. This is in Ezra. That the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, King of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom, and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith King Cyrus of Persia, The Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And then he says this, Who is there among you of all of his people? His God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever remains in any place where he sojourns, let the men of his place help him. Okay, with silver and gold and all these things. Now, I want you to notice this. If you go back to that PowerPoint, if you'll notice, when this happened, Mordecai is 61 years old. I'm not sure how old Esther is, but why didn't he return? I don't know if you thought about that. He's, he stays in Persia for another 60 years. And just think about this. The whole book of Esther wouldn't have happened if Mordecai would have obeyed and went back. God was telling them, you gotta return to Jerusalem. Here we have Cyrus, but there were a lot of Jews that remained in Babylon. They grew up in Babylon. They knew Babylon. Uh, and that's all they knew. And they stayed. But when you read Ezra, thousands and thousands of Jews in Persia went back to Jerusalem. And so that's the problem. If you remember, they didn't even know Mordecai was Jewish in Persia. They had no idea. He's lived there basically his entire life. And they never even knew he was Jewish. They never even knew Esther was Jewish. So this just shows how assimilated they were. And the thing that we have to realize is we have to learn from History. Okay, so as we study this book, we're going to see some fascinating patterns. And uh, on your sheets, on the side notes, I kind of want you to also write what the Lord is speaking to you. What patterns do you see as we go through this? Uh, one of the obvious patterns, uh, the Middle East was in turmoil back then. Okay, you have Egypt, Assyria, right? Babylon, Syria, all these nations are just in turmoil. Anything new? Anything new? I mean, this is the same old same old, And so I think, uh, how many of you believe that we're just about as wicked as they were back then? Okay, nothing's really changed, guys. But where I want to start is with the prophets during Hezekiah's time. I, told, I gave you just a real fast overview, and now we're going to kind of go back a little bit so we can dig into this. So get out your Bibles if you're live streaming, or you can look at the notes on our website and follow along. But we're going to start with the prophets who were speaking uh, at the time of Hezekiah. We're going to begin with Isaiah, chapter 39. This is verse 5-8. through Isaiah is speaking to Hezekiah, and he's the king. And he says, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. He said, behold, the days are coming. That everything that's in your house and that which your fathers have laid up in store until this day is going to be carried away to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Now, if you remember, I talked about last week how there, there was no kingdom of Babylon. There was no king of Babylon. This is a prophecy about what's going to happen. Uh, and, you know, obviously only God knows these events. And he says to Hezekiah, and of your sons that shall issue from you which you shall beget... They're going to take them away. They're going to be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And then what does Hezekiah uh, say to Isaiah? Hey, great or good is the word of the Lord which you've spoken. And he said moreover, because there's going to be peace and truth in my days. I'm just glad all this turmoil is going to happen in my kids' and grandkids' day. Uh, You know. But now think about this for a minute. If you are Hezekiah's son, grandson, great-grandson, and you know this prophecy... You're going to be on pins and needles wondering if it's my generation. Am I the one? You know, and you may be saying, well, I hope it's in my son's day or my grandson's day. I mean, every generation since then has to be uh, wondering, am I the generation that's going to be taken into captivity? Well, Hosea was also speaking during the time of Hezekiah. Look what it says in Hosea 1.1. The word of the Lord That came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Yotham, Ahaz, and who else? Hezekiah. So let's look at what Hosea was saying during Hezekiah's time. In verse 2, it says, The beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea. And the Lord said to Hosea, Go take a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land has committed great whoredom in departing from the Lord. So right here, if if you've read the book of Hosea, you know it all. It's all about adultery. And that's what Israel has been doing. They've been committing adultery and forsaking the Lord, forgetting the Lord, uh, going to the other pagan nations, serving their gods. And so we see this is happening during Hezekiah's time. Look at chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Now, when he says the land, he's referring to Israel, right? The problem he's having is with his own people. It's not with the heathen. And what does he say? He says, because there's no truth, no mercy, no knowledge of God in the land, by swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break out and blood touches blood. You know, all too often within Christianity, we go, you know, we're beating up on the heathen. I tell you what, when you read your Bible, God's whole problem has never been with the heathen. It's been with his own people. (laughs) <laughs> the evangelists need to work on the church. Okay, look at Hosea four six. Look at this. Everyone knows this verse, but they don't know the context. You have to look at the context. Look at what it says. It says, "My people are destroyed for what? The lack of knowledge of what? Because they don't know the arts. Because they don't know the sciences. They don't know math. What is the why?" Are God's people destroyed? What knowledge do they lack? That's what it says. It says, because you've rejected knowledge, look at this. God says, because you've rejected knowledge, I'm going to reject you, that you will be no priest to me,
1: seeing you have forgotten the Torah of your God, so I'm going to forget your children. Wow. That is heavy. That's America today. Look at Micah. Micah is
0: another prophet. Look at what it says in Micah 1:1. It says, "The word of the Lord came to Micah, the Moristite in the days of Uzzah, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah." And this is what he saw concerning Samaria, Samaria, and Jerusalem. So let's look at chapter 3, verse 12. This is interesting because Jeremiah refers to this verse, but let's just look at this verse in Micah 3.12. It says, Therefore shall Zion, for your sake, be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem will become heaps, and the mountain of the house as the high places of the forest. Look at Micah. Everyone's familiar with Micah chapter 6, I believe. Most people, if you memorize any verses in the Bible, you're going to memorize verses out of chapter 6. But let's look at verse 2 and 3. Again, it says, Here ye, O mountains... The Lord's controversy. And you strong foundation of the earth. The Lord has a controversy with who? His people. And he will plead with Israel. Can you imagine? I don't know. I have a hard time imagining the creator of the universe pleading with man. And he's pleading with us because he's a father who loves us. I mean, this is so incredible. And what does he say? Oh, my people, not oh, heathen. He says, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Testify against me. Who is going to stand in the heavenly court and point at God and say, here's why I didn't serve you? Who is going to testify against God? And God is saying, please testify. What have I done wrong? How have I wearied you? Matter of fact, look at Micah 6:8. This is the verse everyone has memorized, and this is important to note. It doesn't say he has told you, O oh man, what is good. It says he has what? Showed you, O oh man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? Hey, this is really tough. Well, I don't know if we can do this. Is legalism? We've got to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. One of the most amazing things about this verse. Uh, how many of you know that we serve a humble God? I mean, if anyone has a right to be proud, it'd be God. And yet it doesn't say, walk humbly before me. It says, no, walk humbly with your God. We have a humble God. So here we have this humble God, the creator of the universe, that wants to walk with us. And man, his pride is standing up next to this humble God and says, well, I don't know. Let me think about it. I mean, this is just Astounding. But let's go back to Jeremiah 26, 1 through 8 for just a minute. It's not where I want to begin per se, but I want want you to catch this. Here we see it's the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim. So this is a little ways, you know, past even Josiah's reign, uh, right at the end of his reign as a matter of fact. It says, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, came this word from the Lord. So this is right after Hezekiah dies. If you remember, Yehoiakim is taken off to Egypt. He's only ruled three months. Yehoiakim has been put in charge. And the word of the Lord comes, saying, Stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah which come to worship in the Lord's house. All the words I command you to speak unto them and diminish not a word. If so... B, they will hearken and turn every man from his evil way, that I may repent me of the evil. God is saying, I will repent of the evil that I have coming, which I purpose to do unto them because of the evil of their doings. And this is what I want you to tell them. Thus saith the Lord, if you will not hearken to me to walk in my Torah, which I have set before you. You see, at this time, they discovered the Torah scroll. Remember? Jeremiah, they found this, the Torah scroll. And so now they have no excuse. They didn't have printing presses back then. Okay, it's not like they had, it takes a long time to write a Torah scroll. There's not a lot of Torah scrolls that were hanging around. And here you've had the Manasseh uh, ruling for 55 years and then Ammon ruling and they were all wicked and they, who knows, there probably weren't very, too many Torah scrolls around. They were probably all hidden. But now they have no excuse. They have the Torah. And he says to hearken to the words of my servants, the prophets whom I sent to you, both rising up early and sending them. But you have not hearkened. Then will I make this house like Shiloh will make this city a curse to all the nations of the earth. So the priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. And what do you think they did? I repent. I repent. Now, it says it came to pass when Jeremiah had made an end of speaking all that the Lord commanded him to speak to all the people. The priests and the prophets and all the people took him saying, you're a dead man. This is amazing. God says, just repent. I'm looking for revival. I'm looking for repentance. Just repent. These horrible things are going to happen if you don't. And they told Jeremiah, you're, you're going to die for saying these things. Look what it goes on to say in verse 17 through 19. Then rose up certainly the elders of the land and spoke to all the assembly of the people, saying, Now look at this. Hey, remember what Micah said during Hezekiah's reign, the Moor's site. He prophesied the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and spoke to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become heaps. The mountain of the house is the high places of a forest. Well, Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all of Judah, did they kill him? So he has a few guys standing up for him. All right they're saying, hey, look, in Grandpa's day, they didn't kill the prophet Micah. Why should we kill Jeremiah? And I'm sure Jeremiah was saying, thank you very much. It says, did he not fear the Lord and besought the Lord? And the Lord repented him of the evil which he had pronounced against them. Thus might we procure great evil against our souls. So here, there's always a remnant. There's always a few that are saying, look, all God is saying is if we repent, this evil won't happen. But, you know, the problem is... We like our sins so much we don't want to quit. But why why should they be upset? All they had to do was repent. And the evil wouldn't have come. But they don't like to consider repentance as an option. Now Jeremiah 15, if you look at your notes, where I want you to look at where Jeremiah 15 is, we're looking at today we're gonna blend Jeremiah 1, 2, 15, 16, 17, and 12. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. All of those go together. 1, 2, 12, 15, 16, and 17. All those chapters all occurred, you know, right within this time frame. Okay? So we're going to start with Jeremiah 15, though. This is when Jeremiah is beginning to hear from the Lord. And it says in Jeremiah 15, 1 through 4, The Lord said to me, Guess what? Even though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my mind could not be toward this people. Cast them out of my sight, let them go forth, and it'll come to pass if they say unto you, Well, where are we going to go? I want you to tell them, Thus saith the Lord, those that are for death to death, those for the sword to the sword, those are for the famine to famine, those that are for the captivity to the captivity. And I will point over them four kinds, says the Lord that you get the sword to slay, the dogs to tear, the fowls of heaven, and the beasts of the earth to devour and to destroy. And I will cause them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, for that which he did in Jerusalem. Okay, now if I was Josiah, Manasseh was my grandpa. Okay, think about this. King Josiah is hearing Jeremiah say this about how bad his grandpa was. Okay, and they're both young men. Josiah's king. He's hearing Jeremiah bring all of these, uh, and this is before they find the Torah scroll. Okay, this is before. If you'll notice on your sheet, uh, the reforms have just begun, and it was the 13th year, the 12th year of of, uh, Josiah, the reforms are beginning, and then in the 13th year of Josiah, Jeremiah begins prophesying. They don't find the Torah scroll until the 18th year, all right? And so, all of a sudden, Josiah is hearing all of these horrible things. And Josiah's probably thinking, oh, great, I'm the one that's going to have all these horrible things happen. But let's look at Zephaniah. Zephaniah is also prophesying at this time. And look at what he says in chapter 1, 1 through 6. And he's a contemporary of Josiah, not Hezekiah. He's a contemporary of Josiah. And look what he says. It says, The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah. When? In the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. And listen to what Josiah hears Zephaniah say. He says this. I'm going to utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. I'm going to consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, the stumbling blocks, along with the wicked. I'm going to cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah, against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place, the names of all the idolatrous priests, with the pagan priests, those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops, those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord. but who also swore by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, and they've not sought the Lord nor inquired of him. I don't know, but if if I was around hearing that, I'd immediately start repenting and start inquiring of the Lord. How about you? Well, Well, look at this. Now think about this. Do you think all of a sudden Josiah is kind of picking up steam? All right, we need to start doing something. If I don't want this to happen in my day, I better get involved because it sounds like it's coming down. Look at verse 7 and 8. It goes on to say, Be silent in the presence of the Lord, for the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord is prepared to sacrifice. He's invited his guests, and it shall be in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such clothed with strange apparel. Okay, now think about this. You know, I mean, if I was Josiah, and I'm hearing this, gee, I'm the king. (laughs) And it's it's the king's kids. It's all of these princes as well. They're the ones that are going to be punished, and all those that are clothed with strange apparel. Does it say God's going to punish the heathen, or the king's kids, and the princes, and his own kids? That's who he's going to punish. And what does it mean to be clothed with strange apparel? Uh, This can also be translated as foreign apparel. In other words, people who have made covenant with the other nations. Okay? But let's look at the Gospels now and listen to the Gospels, and let's see if we can see a parallel. Look at Matthew 22, the kingdom of heaven. This is verse 2 through 13. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king, which made a marriage for his son, and he sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding. And what does it say? They would not come. So this goes right back to Zephaniah. It says he's, a, he's prepared a sacrifice. He's invited his guests, right? And so here we see this king. He's, he's got a wedding for his son. And they don't want to come. And so it says he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden. Behold, I prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fallings are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the marriage. So his sacrifices are ready. Everything's ready. But what did they do? They made light of it, and they went their own way. One to his farm, one to his merchandise, and the remnant took his servants and treated them spitefully, slew him. But what happens when the king hears of this? He was very angry. He went, he sent forth his armies, and he destroyed the murderers and burned up their city. And then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready. They which were bidden are not worthy. Go into the highways. As many as you find, bid them to the marriage. So the servants went out to the highways, gathered together as many as they could find, both the bad and the good. Okay, first off, we don't clean them up and bring them to the Messiah. We just bring in the bad and the good. He's the one that cleans them. Okay? But look at what it says. The wedding was furnished with guests, and when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which did not have on a wedding garment. And he said, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? Here you have someone who's come in, clothes in strange apparel. This is, this is referring right back to Zephaniah 1, 7 and 8 sacrifice has been made, the wedding is ready, they bid the guests, and now there's someone coming in strange apparel that God is going to judge. And here in Matthew, we see this same thing. This person didn't have on a wedding garment. He was speechless. And then said, the king to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into the outer darkness where there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Man, what is going on here? Well, one of the things that I have heard was that, uh, I mean, if you're the king, you're going to have a nice palace. Everyone's going to be coming. And you don't want this poor person who just has tattered, you know, ripped, torn garments to come into the palace all tattered and torn. And so the king would supply garments for everybody that they could wear. And so that way, when they came in, they all would look just fine. But this person says to the king, I don't want your garment. I want to come in my own garment. Think about that. People want to come in their own righteousness. They don't want God's righteousness. I want to come to the party, but I'm going to come in on my terms. I'm not going to come in on the king's terms. Now, look at Zephaniah 1, verse 12. It goes on to say, I want you to be putting in your mind, this is happening during Josiah's time. This is what he's hearing before the revival breaks out and they find the Torah scroll and have the greatest Passover ever. Zephaniah 1.12, it goes on to say, And it will come to pass at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish all the men who are settled in complacency. Who say in their heart, Oh, the Lord won't do good and He won't do evil. In other words, the Lord's not concerned. He's not involved in the earth. He's not going to do anything good. He's not going to do anything bad. That's who's going to be punished. And then look at verse 14 through 16. A lot of times prophecy, because history repeats itself prophecies that were prophesied back then were not only for then, but they're for our time as well. This is why history repeats itself too. But I cannot read this without thinking of the great tribulation that's coming. Look at Zephaniah 1, 14-16 and tell me if you think there's anything but the great tribulation. It says, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near, and it hastens quickly. Now, let me just jump in here for a minute. Since They had the tornadoes in Oklahoma. I grew up in Kansas where there were tornadoes. Okay? Most people in Kansas have basements. You know, everybody heads to the basement. But you always got some crazies out there, like me and others, who want to go find a tornado. Okay? And take pictures or whatever. You know. But uh, when... uh, When you're listening to the news, you're watching the TV, you're looking out your house, looking at the tornado, when all of a sudden you you hear, I mean, I've seen tornadoes, and I'm out in the distance, and then I find out there's one forming right over our head. There could be more than one tornado in an area. And it's like, okay, time to get down to the basement, you know, so off we go to the basement. But when all of a sudden you hear, not once, not twice, but three times, it is near, it is near, it's coming quickly. Now you, you said, you know, it's time to, you know, dive. Okay? It's, and look what it says three times concerning the great day of the Lord. It is near. It is near. It is hastening quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men will cry out. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. This is the great day of the Lord. This is, to me, this is the great tribulation, pretending it, okay? Well... One of the amazing things about this, when it says it's the day of the trumpet and alarm, the word for day in Hebrew is what? Yom. Okay? And the word for alarm is teruah. This is the day of Yom Teruah. Okay? And you hear the shofar. It talks about the trumpet of the shofar. This is one of the scripture reasons why I think some year the Great Tribulation will begin on Yom Teruah. Okay, I don't know. I don't set dates. I have no idea what year. But now look at this. Here, it's just got to saying the great day of the Lord is hastening. It's coming quickly. It's coming quickly. So what's the next step? Look at Zephaniah 2, 1 through 4. It says, okay, gather yourselves together. Yea, gather together, O undesirable nation, before the decree is issued, or the day passes like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you. Before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. Look how many times it says before. First it says, hurry, hurry, hurry. He's coming quickly. But before, 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 here's what you need to do. And what do we need to do right before? It says, seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. It may be you'll be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. How many of you want to be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger? I tell you what, uh, a lot of times when dad gets mad, I don't want to be around. All right? Well, it's the same thing. And if God says we can be hidden in the days of the Lord's anger, I don't know what hidden means, but I like the idea. Okay? But here's something that I want to point out that is absolutely incredible. Right here in this prophecy, it's saying the, the great day of the Lord is hastening, it's coming quickly, and then it says, hurry, hurry, before, right before, you need to seek the Lord and seek truth and seek righteousness, and then it's going to give you one of those signals or signs how close the great day of the Lord is. And the very next verse is, For Gaza will be forsaken. And in 2005, the Gaza Strip was forsaken on the 9th of Av. See, this is incredible tie-in to modern day history. Gaza Strip was forsaken the, on the same day the 10 spies brought the bad report Forsaking the land of Israel, the 9th of Av, is the same day they forsaken again. And they evacuated it at sunset on the ninth of Av. See, so unless you're on the biblical calendar, you don't make the connection here. But then, look what it goes on to say. And Ashkelon will be desolate. They'll drive out Ashdod at noonday and Ekron will be uprooted. If you're in Israel, you know just how close... Ascalon and Ashgod is to the Gaza Strip and Ekron. They're all just right there. Now, some people say, well, that was bad that Sharon evacuated the Gaza Strip. Look what happened to Sharon. He's been in a coma for a long time, right? But you know what? God always turns things for good. We're still judged for the bad things we do, but how many of you like the fact that even though we mess up, God can turn it to the good? Look at what happened here Judah evacuated the Gaza Strip. And who moved into the Gaza Strip? Hamas. Hamas is running the Gaza Strip. Okay, so what does God say is going to happen? He says, he goes on to say in verse 5 through 7, well, guess what? Woe well, now to those current inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Cherethites, the word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, the land of the Philistines. This is where the Palestinians are. He says, I will destroy you so there will be no inhabitant. The seacoast will be pastures with shelters for shepherds and folds for flocks. The coast will be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They will feed their flocks there in the houses of Ashkelon. They shall lie down at evening for the Lord their God will intervene for them and return their captives. And so what's fascinating about this prophecy, God has moved the Jews out, He's moved Hamas in, and I don't know if it's going to be an asteroid, an earthquake, a tsunami, but that whole area is going to be destroyed. And then God's going to say, okay, now that that's taken care of, we're going to move Judah back, and Judah's going to get in there, and it's going to be for the fold for flocks. And guess who, remember all the tribes scattered around Israel, where all they were? Guess who the Gaza Strip belongs to? And it says specifically in the Bible, to Judah, the tribe of Judah, where Yeshua's property. That is specifically Yeshua's property. He is not going to allow that to be taken. That's his land. And so look at uh, verse 13. It says, he will stretch out his hand against the north. Now remember, see, in Josiah's time, Assyria ends up getting destroyed. And Nineveh becomes a desolation as drives the wilderness. So here's Zephaniah even prophesying about the coming destruction of Assyria and the capital city, Nineveh. But let's go back to Jeremiah concerning Israel, back to chapter 15, verse 6. Look what God says concerning the nation of Israel. He says, they've forsaken me, says the Lord. You've gone backwards. Therefore, I'm going to stretch out my hand against you. I'm going to destroy you. And God says, "I'm, I'm worried with repenting. I'm tired of repenting. You know what I can't believe about Moses? Moses had the gall to go up to God and say, God, repent. How many of us would have the gumption to go up to God and say, God, repent? He had a good relationship with God. But God, you know, God wants us to be bold like that when it comes concerning evil. You know, he's saying, God, you know, if they're like Abraham, if there be ten righteous, can you spare it? God is always looking for an intercessors. Look at verse 15 through 18 of Jeremiah 15. Look what Jeremiah says. He says, Oh Lord, you know, remember me. <laughs> Don't destroy everybody. Remember, I'm here. Please visit me. Revenge me of my persecutors. Take me not away in your long suffering. Know that for your sake i suffered rebuke. And then look what Jeremiah says. He says, Your words were found, and I did eat them. I can't help but think of the Apostle John in Revelation. Ezekiel, taking the scroll and eating it. And Jeremiah, he says, I found your words, and I ate them. And your word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. And look at what he says here. I sat not in the assembly of the mockers, nor rejoiced. What verse do you think of when I talk about not seating, sitting uh, in the assembly of the scornful and the mockers? Watch how this unfolds as we go here. He says, "I sit alone because of your hand, for you have filled me with indignation, which is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuses to be healed. Will you be altogether unto me as a liar and as waters that fail?" This term, waters that fail, I've underlined because it's so highly significant. God is the fountain of living waters that will never fail. Watch, remember that phrase. Let's go back to chapter 15. Let's look at verse 20 and 21. This is God's response to that comment by Jeremiah. He says, I'm going to make you unto this people as a fence, brazen wall. They're going to fight against you, but they're not going to prevail against you. For I am with you to save you and to deliver you, says the Lord. I'm going to deliver you out of the hand of the wicked. I will redeem you out of the hand of the terrible. Well, I tell you what, if I, if I was going into this uh, pit with all these evil, wicked people that want to kill me, I sure would want God watching my back. So let's go to chapter 16. This is what else is going on at this time. The word of the Lord comes back to Jeremiah and he says, Jeremiah, don't take a wife. Don't have any sons or daughters in this place. For thus says the Lord concerning the sons, concerning the daughters that are born in this place, concerning their mothers that bear them, concerning their fathers that begot them in this land, they're going to die a grievous death. They'll not be even be lamented, neither shall they even be buried, but they'll be like dung on the face of the earth. And they'll be consumed by the sword, famine. Their carcasses will be food for the fowls of the heaven and for the beasts of the earth. I tell you what, I would say, okay. Let's look at what it goes on to say in verse 10 through 13. It says, and it'll be when you show this people all of these words. And they say to you, now let's look at this. After Jeremiah says all this, this is what the people are going to say to him. Why has the Lord pronounced all this great disaster against us? Or what is our iniquity? Or what is our sin that we've committed against the Lord, our God? I mean, don't even realize, this is the amazing thing. And, And again, let me just throw out some other verses that you all have memorized anyway. But Revelation 3, around verse 20, where the Lord says, I stand at the door and knock, and if any man hear my voice and open, you know, we'll eat together, right? And a lot of people use that for a salvation verse. Oh, the Lord is sitting at the door of the unbeliever knocking. Just open the door. Wrong. He's at the door of the church knocking, and they don't even know he's not there. He's knocking at the door of the church. Hello, church. And they say, leave us alone. We're having church. And here they're having church, and they don't even know God's not in the building. He's left. He's gone. He's out there, and he's not wanting to go in. He's wanting them to get the heck out of there. That is not a salvational phrase. That is a repentance phrase for a lazy church that's blind, miserable, naked. Okay, so let's go on. It says, or if they say, or oh, what is our sin that we've committed against the Lord of God? Then this is what you're to say to them. Because your fathers have forsaken me, says the Lord, they've walked out after other gods, they've served them, they've worshipped them, they've forsaken me, and they've not kept my Torah. And you have done worse than your fathers, for behold, each one follows the dictates of his own evil heart, so that no one even listens to me. I can't think of the book of Judges, where it says everyone did that which is right in their own eyes. And how much today do people do whatever their own heart dictates? There is no truth. Your truth and my truth. I believe in truth, but my truth is different than your truth. There is no true truth anymore. Everyone's going after their own evil heart, and no one's listening to God. And so he says, therefore, I'm going to cast you out of this land into a land that you don't know, neither you nor your fathers, and there you're going to serve other gods day and night where I will not show you any favor. Wow. And then look what it says in verse 14 through 16. It goes on to say, therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, Here's the good news. He says that uh, no more will it be said that the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, but the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he had driven them. See, the Assyrian captivity had already taken place. They've already been scattered all around the north. But God is saying, but guess what? Good thing for you guys. I'm merciful. And even though all of them have been scattered, I'm going to bring them back. He says, I will bring them back into their land, which I gave to their fathers. Behold, I will send for many fishermen, says the Lord, and they're going to fish them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. You know some incredible things about this particular verse? How many of you have heard heard it said within Islam that the trees and the rocks will cry out, There is a Jew behind me. Come and kill him. You familiar with that? Well, that concept almost comes from this verse where many hunters are going to come from every mountain, every hill, and out of the holes of the rocks. But Islam got that from Christianity. That is where that came from. But here's a side note. The, this is I'm going to talk to you prophetically what's going to come, what I see happening now. I'm going to tie in today with this verse. Okay? Here's what I think has happened. God wants all the Jews in the land of Israel for the second coming. He wanted them all there at Passover when Yeshua died. He wanted them all there for the Feast of Shavuot when the Spirit was poured out. And he wants them all there for the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay? Trumpets, Yom Kippur, he wants them there to return to the land. But just like Mordecai, there's a bunch that don't, why do I want to go to Israel? There's war and all kinds of things. And I make great money here in America or whatever or anywhere else. I don't want the stress. Okay, so God has been uh, fishing them, trying to get them to come back. 9-11, the economy collapsed, right? And a lot of people that had money lost money, and God was that was the carrot to try to get the Jews to come back to the land of Israel. But even after the economy falls, some of them are still hesitant. They're trying to earn more money again or whatever. So I think the hunters are coming next. That's going to chase the Jewish people back to the land of Israel. I think uh, I think the economy is going to go down even further, you know, a global economic collapse. But what's going to happen, I see a war coming in Syria very soon with Israel, Russia, everything that's going on, Iran, the Middle East. And how many of you know everyone always blames the victim? Okay? I think Israel's gonna defend themselves, and they're probably gonna end up being destroying much of Syria and Iran and everything else. But what's gonna happen, there's gonna be riots all over the world because Israel did that. And there's gonna be great persecution because of that. And you're gonna probably see terrorist attacks all over the world in different cities, whether it's Jews or whatever, is, there's gonna be a, a big uplift in terrorist attacks, uh, because they're gonna to try to drive the Jews back. Okay, Just like Jonah and the boat, they didn't want to throw Jonah out, but they thought that we were going to be saved is if we throw Jonah out. And I think what's going to happen, because this is what happens, if these Jews weren't here, America wouldn't be suffering, so we need to kick the Jews out just to save ourselves. I'm just giving you the mentality. Once terrorist attacks happen here and, and they're blaming the Jewish people, rather than getting rid of the people that are causing the attacks, we're going to say if the Jews weren't here, we wouldn't have these problems. I'm just telling you the human mind. This is psychology. This is what happens. And so this is what I God sent the fishermen trying to fish him back, and, and I think the hunters are coming. And when you look at look at these things, and this is what I see. But let's go back and look at eighteen through twenty-one. God says, First, I'm going to repay devil for their iniquity and their sin, because they defiled my land. they filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable and abominable idols. O Lord, my strength and my fortress, my refuge in the day of affliction. Now look at this. This is exciting. It says, the Gentiles are going to come to you from the ends of the earth, and they're going to say, surely our fathers have inherited lies, worthlessness, and unprofitable things. This is what's happening right now. uh, The Gentiles all over are saying, oh my goodness, we've inherited a lot of lies. Things that don't profit. Surely, uh, it says, worth, uh, see. Will a man make gods for himself which are not gods? Therefore, behold, I will this once cause them to know. I will cause them to know my hand and my might, and they will know that my name is the Lord. How are the Gentiles going to know that his name is the Lord? Is when he restores Jerusalem. Okay? And he saves Jerusalem. So let's look at Second Chronicles 34, verse 1 and 2. Here, little Josiah is only 8 years old when he began to reign. And he reigns 31 years. And he does that which is right in the sight of the Lord. He walks in the ways of David, his father. He didn't go to the left or the right, right? So when he's eight as king, Jeremiah is 10. So they're just two little boys growing up together. And look at what it says in uh, 2 Chronicles 34, 3 and 5. It talks about in the eighth year of his reign. So if he was eight years old when he began, he's now 16 years old. While he was yet young, he began to seek after the God of David, his father. you Remember, he's already had a couple kids by now. And in the 12th year, okay, he's 20 years old, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places and the groves and the carved images and the molted images. Why? He's been hearing Zephaniah, he's been hearing Jeremiah, he's been hearing all these things and saying, if I don't want this to happen in my day, I gotta start making action. I gotta start tearing these things down. And so they broke down the altars of Balaam in his presence and the images that were on the high above them. He cut down in the groves and the carved images and the molten images. He broke in pieces and he made dust of them. He stood upon the graves of them that had sacrificed unto them. And he burnt the bones of the priests upon their altars and cleansed Judah in Jerusalem. Okay, he's got a five-year-old and a three-year-old and he doesn't want this for his kids. Okay, and so Josiah is hearing all these prophets, and he's saying it's time to get to work, and he begins to cleanse everything. And so look how far to what extent he went in verse 6 and 7. It says, so he did in the cities of Manasseh and Ephraim and Simeon, and as far as Naphtali and all around with axes. And when he had broken down the altars and the groves, and he had beaten the graven images into powder, he cut down all the idols around all the land of Israel, and then he returns to Jerusalem. Good job, Josiah. And now what do we see? It's the 13th year of his reign. He's 21 years old. Jeremiah's 23 years old. And for the first time, the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah. So Jeremiah is now adding to Hosea's and Zephaniah's words about the destruction that's coming, even though he's begun the reforms. Nabal Pileser has now become the king of Babylon. And then what do we find? So now we're going to begin the book of Jeremiah. All right. Chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Here's the words of Jeremiah, the son of Okiah, of the priests that were in Amethos, in the land of Benjamin, whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. Okay, we just got done reading in the twelfth year of his reign, he's making all these reforms. The very next year, Jeremiah comes, and he starts preaching all these horrible things that are coming, even though the reforms are going on. Okay? There's reason for this you're going to see here. Maybe not this week. But, the reforms have begun. Now, let me put up this map here. Okay, these arrows is pointing. Here's Jerusalem. Okay, here's uh, Jerusalem's that little dot right there. Right across, about a mile away, this is the Mount of Olives in Bethany. Bethlehem is three miles to the south. Anathoth is a couple miles to the north. So there's Anathoth. There's Jerusalem. It's a pretty close proximity. So I just wanted to give you an idea if you didn't know where Jerusalem was in relationship to Anathoth. It's very close. Anathoth is a couple miles to the north. Okay, so now you know where he is. And then uh, look at what it says here, Jeremiah 1.3. It came also, the word of the Lord also came in the days of Yehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, to the carrying away of Jerusalem, captive in the fifth month. So basically when you add this up, Jeremiah prophesied for 41 years successively. In Judea, from the 13th year of Josiah to the 11th year of Zedekiah. You're going to see that's 41 years. And this is when the temple is destroyed. But he continued prophesying in Egypt. So it was successive years that he prophesied. Uh, at the time when the temple was destroyed, Jeremiah would have been 62. But right now, where we're at, he's only 23 years old. So Jeremiah is... Anybody here 23 years old? All right. That's pretty young. That really is. Matter of fact, my wife told me the other day people's brains only been completely formed till they're 30. But anyway, let's look at Jeremiah chapter one, verse four and five. Here's what the word of the Lord said unto Jeremiah. Before I even formed you in the belly, I knew you. Before you came out of the womb, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to who? All the nations, not just Israel. I mean, you're going to see in Jeremiah 46 on, he's prophesying to Edom, into Assyria, into Egypt, into Babylon. So he's prophesying to all the nations. But here's what's amazing. Look at Jeremiah 1, 4, and 5. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to me. I want to tell you, this is not the word of the Lord came to me in hearing a voice, but the manifestation of the word of God came to him. This is the Messiah who physically came and spoke to him. You're going to see this in just a second, what I'm talking about. But after this happened, when he said he's, he's ordained him a prophet of the nations, Jeremiah says, then said I, Ah, oh, Lord God. But that better translation is, oh, no. No, God. Behold, I can't speak. I'm just a child. But look at verse 7 through 10. But the Lord said to me, don't say I'm a youth, for you shall go to all whom I send you. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to, to deliver you, says the Lord. And then it says, the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth.
1: You see that? The
0: word of the Lord stood there and he touched his mouth. That couldn't happen if it was just a, a voice touching his mouth. The manifestation of the Messiah is there. He is the word of the Lord, the great I am. And he touched his mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I put my words in your mouth. Now, catch this. He says, See, look, I have this day sent you over the nations and over kingdoms to root out, to pull down, to destroy, to throw down, and to build and to plant. Well, I couldn't help but think of Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 3. What's this? For everything there is a season, a time for every person... purpose under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up. Okay, now I have here the Hebrew word for time. Everyone's familiar with the Aleph Tav. This is the Ayin Tav. Okay, the word for time here is the Ayin Tav. It's time. There's a time for everything. My question to you is what time is it? What time is it? Well, you know what's fascinating about this word time? Let's go to the PowerPoint here. Here is the the ayin tav. This is the word for time. What time is it? In the ancient Hebrew, it was an eye and a cross to see the covenant. And he says, I want you to see something. Well, we need to see the covenant. Now look at this. And the question is, what do you see? So look at this very next verse now in verse 11 and 12. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? Okay, so this is this all has to do with sight, not just hearing. And he says, I see the rod of an almond tree. Then said the Lord unto me, you have well seen, for I will hasten my word to perform it. Now, I want you to notice this. Here is that word for the almond tree. shockade. But I want you to notice, and you don't see this in English, only in the Hebrew, it's the very same word for to hasten. The very same word for hasten is is shakad. Shakad is the almond tree, and shakad means to be alert, to be sleepless, to be on the lookout. So God is speaking to Jeremiah about a rebellious Israel. And what does Jeremiah see? What does, he, what does it say that Jeremiah sees? The rod of an almond tree. Okay. So let's put almond tree here. Here's the almond tree. This is the, the almond tree. And he sees the rod of an almond tree. Well, when I think of the rod of an almond tree, I cannot help but go to Numbers seventeen eight, 8, where you have a rebellious house of Israel. You have Korah and the earth swallowing him up. And it says, It came to pass on the morrow, Moses went into the tabernacle of witness, and behold, the rod of Aaron, the house of Levi, was budded, brought forth buds, blossom, bloom blossoms, and what else did it do? Almonds. Almonds. This is very important. Look at verse 10 through 13. What does the Lord say to Moses? Bring Aaron's rod back for the testimony to be kept as a sign against the rebels. When Jeremiah sees this rod of an almond tree, do you realize Jeremiah is a son of Aaron? He's a priest. He is a son of Aaron. Aaron's rod that budded, that produced the almond trees. When he sees this uh, this rod of an almond tree, he sees this rebellious house of Israel that's about to be judged. This is what he's seeing. seeing. In number 16, uh, 31 through 35, it talks about how the 250 men uh, were killed for offering the strange incense as well. And in number 16, 41, the very next day, all the congregation of children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron saying, You killed the people of the Lord. Well, they didn't kill anybody. The Lord killed them. And now God's really bad. And we find in verse 48 and 49, another 14,700 die. I mean, this rod that budded in bare almonds is a sign of God's judgment against the rebels. And here Jeremiah 1 begins with him seeing this rod of an almond tree. And he sees he is a son of Aaron. And he's part, he's the one that's holding that rod almost. And judgment is coming.
1: Where else? Oh, I want you to remember he said to see, right? Let me put up this cute little picture here.
0: You see this? The almonds are like eyes. The almonds are eye-shaped, and he wants them to see. And the very word shakad means to see, to be alert. Shakade is almond, and shakad means to see, to be alert, to be on the lookout. Okay? So he wants him to see. He says, what do you see? So we have the Aaron's rod that budded. Where else do we see almonds mentioned in the Torah? In the menorah, which is lit. And the purpose is so you can see. Remember Revelation, he sees a menorah that has seven eyes. In Zechariah 2, there's a menorah with seven eyes to see. The menorah is what gives light. In Exodus 25:34, t- talks about on the lampstand itself, before bowls will be made like almond blossoms, each with its ornamental knob and flower. So what did God give Jeremiah? He gave him a view of the coming destruction of Judah and Jerusalem by the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. I don't know if you knew this, but the almond tree is the first one to blossom in Israel in the spring. It's the first one to blossom. And so now it represents the speedy approach of the judgments that are coming. See, it's the first one. That's how when you you know what time it is when you see the almond bud. So let's go back to Jeremiah 1, 13 and 14. The word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, what do you see? And he says, I see a seething pot and the face thereof is toward the north. And the Lord said to be out of the north, and evil will break forth upon the inhabitants of the land. That's exactly how Nebuchadnezzar came. He destroyed Assyria and Nineveh and went over to Carchemish and then comes down from the north. So God showed Jeremiah from where the intended ruin would come. And the seething pot represents Jerusalem and Judah in great commotion and turmoil. And so what do we see now in Jeremiah 1, 15 through 19? Look what God says. He says, Lo, I'm going to call all the families of the kingdom of the north. Says the Lord, and they're gonna come, and they're gonna everyone is thrown at the entering of the gates of Jerusalem against all the walls, against all the cities of Judah, and then God says, I'm gonna utter my judgments against them, touching all their wickedness, those who have forsaken me, burned incense unto other gods, worship the works of their own hands you, therefore, gird up your loins, arise, and speak to them everything I command you. Don't be dismayed at their faces, lest I confound you before them. For behold, I made you a defense city, an iron pillar, brazen walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against the princes, against the priests, against the people of the land. And they're going to fight against you, but they're not going to prevail against you, for I'm with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. But I tell you what, if I was Jeremiah and I'm only 23 years old, and it's you know, you've got all the people of the land against you, but look what he said, Jeremiah 2, 1 through 5. We're going to look at Jeremiah 2 also. It says, The more of the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord. Now you would think, see, this is the problem today. We need to see that law and grace go together. They're just opposite sides of the same coin. You can't have all law. You can't have all grace. Or you have chaos. And what do you see? What does God say after all of this we've read in chapter 2? He says, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your espousals, when you went after me in the wilderness, in a land that was not sown. Israel was holiness to the Lord, the firstfruits of his increase, all that devour him shall offend. Evil will come upon them, says the Lord. Hear ye the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, again, he says, What iniquity have your fathers found in me? That they're gone far from me and have walked after vanity and are become vain. Remember Micah? We just read in Micah 6. What have I done unto thee? Testify against me. And here we see Jeremiah saying, God saying to Jeremiah the very same thing that he had said a hundred years earlier. So, what, what if, uh, you know, man, I love you guys. All you have to do is repent and return and these horrible things won't happen. But look at this. Here's Jeremiah 2, 7 through 9. Now think about this. This is during Josiah's time. He says, I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit and the goodness. But when you entered, you defiled my land. You made my heritage an abomination. And the priests didn't even say, where is the Lord? And they that handle the law didn't even know me. This goes back to Revelation 3, 20, the Laodicean church. Here he's standing at the door of the church. They don't even know him. They don't know the Torah. And I say, get out of here. We're having church. The pastors transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal. They walked after other things that don't profit. And yet look again what the creator of the universe says. Wherefore I will yet plead with you, says your children, uh, says the Lord, and with your children, children will I plead. It's just amazing to me that God will humble himself to plead with man. And then look at verse 11 and 12. He says, As a nation changed their God, which are no gods, but my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid, and be very desolate, says the Lord. Well, this takes me right to Romans chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, where it talks about people who profess to be wise, but they're fools. They change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like the corruptible man, birds, four-footed bees, all kinds of creeping things. Jeremiah 2.13. God says, look, we're going to make it real simple. My people have done two things wrong. They committed two evils. Number one, they forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, And they feed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can't even hold water. So what are these cisterns that he's talking about, these broken cisterns that can't hold water? It could be their idols, which are just empty, vain things that uh, never answer their expectation. But more than likely, these broken sisters are Assyria in Egypt that you're going to soon see because they were relying on them for help. They've forsaken living waters. Living waters never cease. You have it coming in, going out. Isaiah 58.11, look at what it says. The Lord shall guide you continually, satisfy your soul in drought, make fat your bones, and you shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters fail not. Remember I read Jeremiah, and he talked about, God, will your waters fail? And God saying, no, these waters fail not. I'm living water. Now, I can't help when I'm re- reading this, but think of John chapter 7, verse 37 and 38. You're all familiar with It says, in the last day, that great day of the feast. And what feast is it that they're talking about here? The feast of tabernacles. Yeshua stood, and what does he do? It says, he cries out, saying, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. He that believes on me, as the scripture says, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. I'm going to take a moment to tell you what was going on in the temple at this time. Let me ask you this. How many here have not seen the feast DVDs that we have here? Wow, pretty much. Well, a lot of... Some of you have not seen it. You want to get our feast DVDs. I go through what was going on in the temple, especially during John chapter 7, during the Feast of Sukkot, when he stood up and he cried out, you know, as the scripture says, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. This is so significant because... In Exodus 15, when they crossed the Red Sea and all of Egypt was drowned, remember, uh, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. Well, that verse in Exodus 15 is also in Psalms 118. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation, or Yeshua. And Psalm 118 is part of the Hillel. But guess what? It's also in Isaiah 12. And history records they would sing Isaiah 12 during the Feast of Tabernacles. So this is the song they were singing when Jesus interrupted them during their song service. One of the things that happened, it all has to do with the water libation on the Feast of Tabernacles. They would pour out, well the high priest will go out the water gate South, down to the Pool of Siloam, because the Pool of Siloam had living water. And he would have this golden pitcher he would fill with the living water. His assistant had a silver pitcher filled with wine. So here you have the living water in the blood. Josephus recorded two million Jews would be at Jerusalem for the feast. So can you think the up is big? Can you imagine two million people, and they're all singing. A two million member choir. And uh, they had this huge parade of these, all these priests who would go down with the high priest to the Pool of Siloam. And then they come marching back up uh, to go through the water gate. And then they would walk around the altar on the, the seven days of ta- Feast of Tabernacles one time and pour the water and the blood on the altar. But on the seventh day, they would do a Jericho march and walk around the altar seven times. Okay? Well, what's amazing, out the eastern gate, at the same time the high priest was going down to get the living water, another group of priests would go out the eastern gate down to the Motsaw Valley, and they would grab willow branches. Now, these willow branches were 30 feet long. Okay, and they would cut them down. And there's thousands of priests in a parade with these 30 foot long willow branches. And they would take a step and wave the willows, and take a step and wave the willows. Rows and rows of priests, about 30 feet apart, if they don't hit each other in the head, you know. And uh, they're marching up the eastern to the eastern gate at the same time the high priest is coming up the water gate. So there's this two simultaneous processions that are going up. Now these willow branches, can you imagine the wind? rustling all these you know thousands of willow branches well the hebrew word for wind is ruach which is also translated as spirit so here you have the spirit of god is moving up the eastern gate at the same time the living water and the blood is coming up the southern gate when they would get to the respective gates at the temple before they would enter there was another priest at the corner of the temple the Talmud records that would be playing a flute And because a flute is pierced, he was known as the pierced one who would call for the wind and the water to enter into the temple. And then they're marching around this this thing seven times, and they're pouring the water and the wine out, and then they're singing Isaiah 12. Okay? And let's look at Isaiah 12. Here we just got done reading that Yeshua in John 7 stood and he cried out. Okay? As the scripture says, come to me. Here's what they're singing. This was a song. Behold, God is my Yeshua. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my Yeshua. Therefore, with joy shall you draw waters from the wells of Yeshua. It's right at this moment when they say that. And he says, Yes, as the scripture says, I'm the one that this is talking about. This is incredible. But there's more. It says, and in that day shall you say, praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his doing among the people, make mention that his name is exalted. Sing unto the Lord, for he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Now look at this. Cry out and shout, you inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst.
1: This is what they're singing, and they he's saying, oh yeah, it's me.
0: This is what is so incredible. And let's look at Jeremiah 2, 18 and 19. Let's go back to Jeremiah. And remember I told you the broken cisterns in Jeremiah 2 referred to Assyria and Egypt. Well, look at what it says. What have you to do in the way of Egypt to drink the waters of Sehor? What have you to do in the way of Assyria to drink the waters of the river? In other words, they're trusting in, in, in Egypt, they're trusting in Assyria, just like Israel today, maybe trusting in other nations, the UN or whatever. They've got to trust in God. It says, your own wickedness is going to correct you, your backslidings will reprove you. Know therefore and see that it's an evil thing and bitter that you have forsaken the Lord your God. My fear is not in you, says the Lord God of hosts. Egypt and Syria, in case you know, have no love for Israel. They will, they will always fail them. But look at Jeremiah 2, 20 and 21. This talks about a revival coming. Parcel revival. God says, For of old time I've broken your yoke, i burst your bands, and you said, Okay, I won't transgress anymore. How often do we cry out to God, Okay, I'll stop, I'll stop, just get me out of this mess. Whereupon every high hill and every green tree you've wandered, playing the harlot. He says, Yet I planted you a noble vine, wholly a right seed. How come you've turned into a degenerate plant of a strange vine to me? Look at Isaiah 5, 1-4 I can't help but think of this And remember Isaiah is prophesying during Hezekiah's time Look at what he says Now will I sing to my beloved My well-beloved A song of my beloved touching his vineyard My well-beloved has a vineyard and a very fruitful hill He fenced it He gathered out the stones He planted it with the choicest vine He built a tower in the midst He made a wine press He looked at it to bring forth grapes But it brought forth wild grapes I mean, look at all the care that God took. And so, what does He, God say here? And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done that I've not done in it? Why, when I look forward to bring forth grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? God says, I've done everything I can. What, what more could I have done? Well, this goes back to Hosea, who was prophesying during this time of Hezekiah. And it goes back to Jerusalem and Israel playing the harlot. Chapter 2, 5 through 8. It says, for their mother played the harlot. She that conceived them has done shamefully. For she said, I'm going to go after my lovers that give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. Who do they think all these blessings, where do they all come from? Themselves? They didn't even see God as being the one that gave them the blessings. Me, me, my, mine. He says, therefore, behold, I'm going to hedge up your way with thorns. I'm going to make a wall that she shall not find her path." So look at God in his love. Rather than saying, fine, you're out of here. What does he do? He puts up this hedge of protection in one sense around her. And it says, She shall follow after her lovers, but she's not going to overtake them. She'll seek them, but she's not going to find them. And then she's going to say, I'm going to go and return to my first husband, for then it was better with me than now. For she did not know that I'm the one who gave her the corn and the wine and the oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. I can't help when I read this, but think of Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 12 through 16. Here he is speaking to the bride, and he says, You're a garden that's enclosed. My sister, my spouse, you're a spring that is all shut up, a fountain that is sealed. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits. And he goes on to say, let's see, a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters and streams from Lebanon. And then what does she say? She turns around and she says, awake, O north, wind, and come thou south, blow upon what? And this is his garden. But she says, well, upon my garden that the spices may flow out. And then all of a sudden she corrects herself. But she says, oh, let my beloved come into his garden. And he his pleasant fruits. So and all of a sudden she realizes, oops, I'm, I'm, you know, she's making a change here. <clears throat> but look how he responds in Song of Solomon 5.1, right after that. He says, look, I am coming to my garden, my sister, my spouse. I've gathered my myrrh with my spice. I've eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I've drunk my wine with my milk. That's all mine, God says. It is not yours. Get a clue here. And then he says, Eat O friends, drink, yea, drink abundantly. I can't help but think of Isaiah 55, where it says, Ho everyone that thirsts us, come into the waters and drink, you know, free without price. Uh, we'll stop there. But to me, it's just so fascinating. Let me ask you one last, I got one last PowerPoint. That's what I was wanted to show you. What pattern did you guys see, when you what you've heard today? Okay, they forgot and they forsook the Lord, the Torah, the covenant. These are the things that brought all this judgment upon them. And this is where uh, we're at today. And we need to repent and return. That's all he wants. God wants to bless you. He does not want to ever bring judgment. But he always warns before he brings judgment in the hopes that we repent and return. So I believe we're we're truly living in the days of Elijah, where the hearts of the children are going to be turned back to the hearts of the fathers, and we're going to repent, and we're going to return, and if nothing else, we need to stand in the gap for our own country, and all of you, like, streaming for your country as well. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Father, we just thank you so much for your Torah, for this time that we can look into your word. and. God, I pray that we would take it to heart, that we had ears to hear, that we would realize we are living in the days of Jeremiah, the same days, and we have no excuse. We have the written word, just like they had no excuse after they had the Torah scroll. We have no excuse, my heavens. God, we, uh, you've been speaking to us for 2,000 years, and we need to learn to hear and to do what you're asking. We need to repent and return to you. I pray, Lord, you keep everybody safe as they go home. Keep everyone safe that is watching around the world live streaming. Protect them. Show them how much you love them as well. We just thank you for your word. In Yeshua's name, amen. Thank you.
1: You're listening to Solace Radio, Monte Vista, Colorado. If you like the programming you hear on Solace Radio, please become a partner with us and donate any amount you'd like, and we'd sure appreciate it, and it helps us to reach more and more people around the world with this great message of hope. Thank you for listening to Solace Radio. Now back to our program.